Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Matthew 19 opens. Well, it opens with Jesus moving out of Galilee into Judea toward Jerusalem. And this is significant because now for some time, Jesus had been in Galilee and even in the far reaches of Galilee to avoid confrontation with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. But now, Jesus having predicted his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, now Jesus begins to move with purpose toward Jerusalem. And so he comes to the Jordan River. So there's a part of Judea that is on the other side of the Jordan. It's the wilderness area of Judea. It's the same area that John the Baptist was baptizing in and preaching in. So Jesus comes to that part of Judea beyond the Jordan River, and he holds up there. And he has a great throng of people following him, among whom he is manifesting God's power by acts of healing. Now, this to us may just seem like... uh, some details of geography to explain where Jesus is and so forth. But in the first century, Jesus' actions here were loaded with meaning. Now what this looked like to any first century Jew was a new entrance into the promised land. For this is the very area where Moses and the children of Israel had come and camped and heard instructions from Moses before they entered the promised land. And what that means, a new entrance into the land, is that Jesus is bringing about a new exodus. Again, this is very significant because God, through the Old Testament prophets, often portrayed the coming of the Messiah and the new covenant as a new exodus and a new entrance into the promised land. Exodus means a deliverance, a deliverance from slavery. The entrance into the promised land means a new inheritance that God is giving the world to his people. So you have this idea, both John came there and then Jesus has come there now. And so it's not surprising that the religious leaders would pick up on this. They pick up on this symbolic language. And so they sent a delegation to meet John the Baptist. They want to know, what are you doing? Why are you baptizing out here? They know something's up. It's not by accident that John is doing what he's doing at this particular place. And now Jesus is there as well. And so they send a delegation out to meet him. And of course, they oppose him. Now, what this means is that if John the Baptist and Jesus are bringing about a new exodus, that means that they are forming up a new faith community. They are forming up a new people of God. They're forming up a new faithful Israel from within Israel. And that's exactly what Moses had done. Remember, the unfaithful generation, they all died in the wilderness. And then Moses brings a new faithful Israel, a new faith community, and prepares them to enter the promised land. And so that's exactly what it looks like John the Baptist and now Jesus is doing. 
And so the questions then become, what will make this new faith community different from Israel as a whole? What will be the characteristics? Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. In what way will the righteousness of this new faith community exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? And remember that righteousness basically means faithful love. In what way will the faithful love of this community exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? How will this new faith community display the faithful love that God desires to see toward himself and also toward the members toward one another? Now, this entire episode, this entire uh, project of forming up a new people for the coming of the Messiah, as well as the characteristics of this new faith community, are what Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, dealt with. And it is Malachi that lies in the background behind Matthew chapter 19. It was Malachi who prophesied both of the coming of the Messiah and the coming of a forerunner, a messenger who would prepare his way. Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare my way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And then in Mal it's Malachi chapter 4, that prophesies about the coming of Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming great and dreadful day of the Lord. And what will he do? Well, he's going to prepare this new faith community and get them ready for the Messiah. And how is that described? It is described in these terms. In these terms. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This is quoted by the angel who appears to John the Baptist's father to tell him that he's going to have a son. The angel says to Zacharias, Your son is going to go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Malachi is very significant. It lies behind Matthew 19, and it helps us understand that the events of Matthew 19, which seem to be just kind of a hodgepodge of random events, really aren't random at all. Now in Malachi, God rebuked his people for having a veneer of love and faithfulness toward him without the heart and substance. God gave the people several examples of how their hollow faithfulness manifested itself in their day-to-day -day lives. And these examples refer to things that operate kind of like vital signs for the overall health of God's people. And two of the vital signs that God points out in Malachi have to do with marriage and children. Those are two of the vital signs. And so it is no coincidence that the first two themes that arise in Matthew 19 are marriage and children. We talked about marriage last week, and this week we come to these three little verses that have to do with children. You know, as sinners, we have a genius 
for sentimentalizing righteousness up and away from real life. And we can see that even in the disciples here in Matthew 19. You remember from last week when Jesus articulated the biblical teaching and the biblical picture and pattern for marriage, the disciples blanched. They balked. When they heard this, they said, well, who? it's better not to be married if this is what is expected. And here we have them today in our passage, shooing away little ones who have come to Jesus to be blessed. They've been brought to him. But marriage and children, these are two of the things that God uses to force righteousness down out of the sky into our actual lives. For I ask you, is there anywhere else where the rubber so meets the road? Now, our text says that little children were brought to Jesus. Raises the question, brought by whom? Well, obviously, they were brought by their parents. And what we see is that this is the essential action of fathers and mothers whose hearts have been turned toward their children, in the words of Malachi. And this does not happen except that first the parents' hearts have been turned toward God in Christ. That's the only way that happens. The byproduct of that is hearts turning to the children, and the essential impulse of godly parents is to bring their children to Jesus. Exactly what we see happening here in this text. And our text also shows us how this is done if we pay attention. It is done by the parents coming to Jesus and bringing their children with them. It is not done by parents sending their children to Jesus. And this reminds us that the essence of being a child is imitating parents. The essence of being a child is imitating their parents, doing what their parents do. And that means that the essence of parenting is providing the right model to our children for them to imitate. Be what you want your children to be. Do what you want your children to do. This means that we as parents, we must ourselves imitate. For though we are parents to our own children, we are also children to our Heavenly Father. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. You see the the idea of imitation there. Be perfect just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. And that is the essential thing godly parents want their children to imitate, being a child of God. So by God's design, we have a cascade of imitation. This is what Paul was getting at when he told the Corinthians. For though you may have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. Imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Now that is the message, that is the essence, that is the heart of parenting. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
And so the Corinthian church, if ever there was a juvenile church, it was the Corinthian church. They had lots of issues. And we see Paul, he rebukes them. He instructs them. He admonishes them. He even threatens to come with them, to them with a rod if they don't heed his rebuke. But in and over and through it all, Paul calls his children in the faith to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So Paul's own life, his own discipleship, his own imitation of Christ was the bedrock of his ministry to his children. Without that, his words, however true, were just words. And it is the same for us and our children. Beneath our instruction and admonition and rebuke and discipline and praise must be our own discipleship and our call to our children, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now this idea is implicit in God's well-known commands to parents in Deuteronomy 6. Listen to this progression. And we start with uh, what was to the Jews the highest verse, uh, the Shema, the greatest verse of the Old Testament. Listen to the progression here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's the first thing. You. Not your children. He hasn't said a word about children yet. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Next. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. He hasn't said a word about children yet. Third. Now you shall teach them diligently to your children. How do you do that? Well, you talk of them. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Well, how can you do that? Because they're in your heart. Because you love the Lord your God with all your heart and his words are in you. And so naturally, these are the things that are going to be exciting to you. They're the most important part of life. And then finally, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house. Then they fill your home. They characterize your home. And they give you opportunity for witness. So our personal love for God and His Word is the foundation for teaching our children and for a biblical home. The Christian home is not just a place of religious instruction and learning. It is a place where love for God and His Word is modeled and imitated. The Christian home is fundamentally a place where love for God and His Word is modeled and imitated. Even so, Paul's children in the faith, they saw his whole life. They didn't see a perfect man. They didn't see him only at his high points. They saw everything about him. Paul said, you've seen my doctrine. You've seen my manner of life. You've seen my purpose. You've seen my faith. You've seen my long-suffering. You've seen my love and my perseverance. And you've seen my persecutions and my afflictions. And how the Lord delivered me out of all of them. That's what they observe. They see the whole thing. And they see how God is with him. 
What are some implications of these biblical realities? Number one, perfection is not required. In fact, perfection is not even an option. Perfection is not required, but sincere discipleship is. Perfection is not required, but sincere discipleship is. Paul in verse Timothy said, The goal of our instruction is love. But love coming from a particular kind of person and a particular kind of heart. Love coming from a sincere faith, a good conscience, and a clean heart. In other words, love coming from genuineness as opposed to hypocrisy. But aren't we all hypocrites? Don't we all uphold and say one thing and then end up falling short of that? Yes, we are all hypocrites when judged by an absolute standard. But I'm not talking here about consistency with perfection. We're talking about here consistency with the faith. And the faith is for sinners. Listen to what Paul Tripp said. This is very important, very powerful. Children whose parents have articulated a strong commitment to the faith, but who have not lived consistent with it, will tend to despise that faith. Living consistently with the faith does not mean living perfectly. But living in a way that reveals that God and His Word are the most important things to you. Such a parent can honor God in his failure with his humility and confession and his determination to change and repent. Paul did not live out some kind of a perfect showcase, victorious Christian life before his children. Remember, they saw his persecutions and his afflictions as well. He had physical afflictions, had sicknesses and other things. By all accounts, Paul was not um, your prototype um, evangelist leader. Uh, if we can rely on descriptions uh, from the early church, he wasn't tall. Unlike most of our televangelists, he didn't have a great big thick head of hair. If the descriptions are correct, he was bald. Um, in fact, the Corinthians had a hard time looking up to Paul because they said his appearance is contemptuous. Not the kind of guy that just walked on the scene and you immediately uh, looked up to him. And remember that great orators and so forth were very much prized in that day, and Paul just didn't fit the bill. Now, why wouldn't Jesus choose somebody a little bit more suited to immediately winning the admiration and respect of people to be the greatest evangelist in the history of the church. I don't know. Jesus didn't choose that person. Jesus chose Paul. And what Paul said is this. He said, I have learned that God's power is made perfect in my weakness. And so that is what gave Paul confidence. Not in himself, but in God who was going to use him. 
Paul's children did not see him live an easy life. They saw him live a life with many difficulties. And they saw God working in Paul all along the way. In 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 4, Paul said that he and many of the other apostles had been made a spectacle to the world. He said, we have become like fools for Christ's sake. He says, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, you're strong. You're distinguished, and we're dishonored. Discipleship is a lifelong process in which God uses the circumstances of life to reveal our hearts and to call us to walk with Him in honesty, love, and loyalty. Now, what does honesty, love, and loyalty mean? Well, for sinners, it means confession, repentance, and renewed commitment and obedience. That's what it means. And this discipleship process is what God does with His children, and it is what God calls us to do with our own children until they grow up to engage in this process directly with God and His Word. What better way for our children to learn the ways of God than to experience them as we parent them, and at the same time, they watch us respond to God as He parents us. The call of parenthood, you see, like the call of marriage, is simply the call of discipleship with the mirror held close. It's the call of discipleship with the mirror held close. So the biggest issues in parenting aren't parenting issues. The biggest issues in parenting are discipleship issues. The biggest challenges in parenting concern not our children's heart. Now, that's a challenge. But the biggest challenges in parenting concern not our children's hearts, but our hearts. Parenting and this whole view of things is not a call to some sort of magical higher holiness, but simply a call to love and walk with the one who saved us. Love and walk with the one who saved you. This is what salvation and Christian life are all about. Our call as parents is a blessing because God uses it to help us along the path we are supposed to be walking anyway. The path of imitating Christ in love for God and His Word. You know, even Jesus spoke of His relationship with the Father in terms of imitation. He said, I can only do the things which I see my father doing. That's the way he described his own sonship, his own walk as the perfect son. Now, God promises us that in this challenge, he has given us everything we need. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it says that God, by his divine power, has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And how is He given this to us? Through the knowledge of Him who called us. So through growing in our knowledge of God, everything pertaining to life and godliness is given to us. 
And Paul assures us in Ephesians 3 that God is able to do more than we ask or even think. Now, we can hear this kind of thing, and we can become discouraged because we can think, well, you know, that's all nice-sounding language, but it's just not my experience. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. More than you ask or even think. We just go, well... I hope somebody has that experience, but it's not my experience. Remember what Paul said. It is in our weakness that God's power is perfected. So Paul said, I have come to the point where I rejoice in my weaknesses. Because I know that it is there that I get to experience the grace and the power of God most powerfully and really. Our transformation as disciples comes little by little. What is ruled out is gimmicks and game-playing. Gimmicks. You know, we oftentimes as parents want to know when we hear what we're called to as parents, we want to know, well, what's the other option? What's the other Christian parenting method that I can follow and be guaranteed my children are going to turn out without me needing to say to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, there isn't any. There isn't any other Christian parenting method or path. There is no silver bullet method or program or environment. I've seen uh, many parents, many, many parents, and I've seen many Christian parents oftentimes uh, desperately casting about for the perfect church or the perfect program or the perfect whatever it is that's going to turn their kids around and, and make them turn out. And it's just like, it's not there. By God's design, it's not there. And many times in situations, uh, you might have a, a father, or a mother, or both of them, a desperate situation about their kids and they want me or the church to help their kids. It's like, we can't help your kids. We can help you. And you can help your kids. We can help you. Because imitate me as I imitate Christ is God's own way of fathering, and it is his own way for Christian parenting. Game playing. Discipleship means always turning toward grace. Discipleship means always turning toward grace, which is something we can do in our failures as well as our successes. Always remember that. Discipleship means always turning toward grace, which is something we can do in our failures as well as in our successes. There is thus no need to hide our failures Indeed, as our children mature, it will be impossible. It will be impossible as our children mature to hide our flaws and our failures. Always remember, God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. That comes from Proverbs 3, and it is quoted in James, and it is also quoted in 1 Peter. It's a seminal text. Because pride and humility tell you whether God is working with someone or against them. 
The one thing that discipleship absolutely does not allow is turning away from grace. And that is the problem with stopping short as opposed to falling short. Falling short is covered by grace. Stopping short is turning away from grace. Falling short is a matter of being redeemed in a fallen world. Falling short, you don't have to plan to fall short. It's just something we do. Because we're sinners, saved. But stopping short is a matter of pride. It manifests a willfulness. It manifests a game-playing type of attitude toward God and His Word. And that's why we cannot have that sort of thing. It's not part of discipleship. Remember that we are always sowing seed. And we sow seed not simply by what we say. We sow seed by the totality of our lives. We sow seed by what I do. Children always get what the parents are sowing. Always. They get what the parents are putting out by the totality of their lives, which may not be the same thing as what the parents are saying, which is why you often have children uh, do the opposite of what their parents are saying, and the parents are so confused and distressed as to why. But anybody from the outside looking in can see, well, the kids are just like you. They're not doing what you say, but they're just like you. We are always sowing seed by the totality of our lives. And the Bible ensures us that what we sow, we will reap. What we sow, we will reap. Whatever comes up, the crop that comes up in harvest is the same thing we put in the ground in spring. The most important thing, therefore, is that we live discipleship in front of our children. If we live discipleship, even in our failures, then discipleship is what we are sowing, and discipleship is what our children will get. Let me say that again. If we live discipleship, even in our failures then discipleship is what we are sowing, and discipleship is what our children will get. So coming now full circle, back to our text. You cannot bring your children to Jesus without you yourself coming to Jesus. And you aren't really coming to Jesus if you're only coming for the sake of your children. You're only coming to Jesus if you are coming regardless whether you have children or not. Regardless of whether you are married or not. Regardless of any other circumstance. You come to Jesus. And bring your children with you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.